This week I read an article entitled How to Be More Productive, 10 Productivity Tips by Colin Duff. And I like things like this. You know, how do you be more productive in your life? Anybody else kind of, hey, you see something like this? Let's read it. And so it had 10 productivity tips. This is in your notes, and you can look this up online. But keep a to-do list for your tasks. Find the time you work best. If you're like me, the morning, that's when I work my best. Work one thing at a time. Group similar tasks together. Take a break every couple of hours. Don't be afraid to delegate or say no. Eat a healthy breakfast and exercise. Ask for help when you need it. Work remotely, occasionally, and mute possible distractions. That's an interesting read. And you can find it online. For, for instance, one of the things they talked about, our writer had to talk about, was Work on one thing at a time. How many of us like to think we, we're multitaskers? You know, we tend to pride ourselves. I'm a multitasker. Well, they say, hey, that, that's really not a good way to be productive. Uh, they say, although we think we're good at multitasking, it has been shown to be one of the worst things we can do for productivity. When we're focusing on multiple things at once, we don't give enough energy and effort into one specific task. What is left is an inefficient use of time and efforts spread across multiple projects at once. Now, you may uh, dispute that, so you can go ahead and get the article, but on success and productivity. We want to be productive and successful people. And so let me take that idea and transition it to the church. What does that look like in a church? Not those particular ten points, but for a church to be productive, for it to be successful. Our passage today is a snapshot of the success taking place in the early church. Now that's what it's about. You're going to see that as we get into some of the details. It's, it's about the success that's taking place in the early church in Jerusalem. Have we seen any of these snapshots before? Yes, go ahead, say that, make my day. Yes, we have in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, and here again in Acts chapter 5. And we won't be done with these snapshots. Is our passage relevant? Go ahead and say, yes, it is. <laughs> and that's because I hope you, yes, I'm talking to each and every one of us, I hope you want to see the success of this church. You want to be a part of a successful church, right? Nod your heads. Yes, we do. We all do. We want to be a success, part of a successful church. So we're going to learn about that today from our passage. What kind of things did they do? What were they about? Let's go ahead and read our passage. There's some 12, 13, 14, 55 verses. And you have notes, and my message is titled, The Early Church, Triumph in Trials. Triumph in Trials. And uh, that's actually where our worship has been, hasn't it? Talking about triumph in the midst of trials. This is all just dovetailing together so wonderfully. If you were in Sunday school, the video we saw was about triumph in trials. That we can expect trials as God works out his purposes in and through our lives. I'm excited to be here today. i just seen all these things dovetail together, and it's tremendous. So let's read our verses. At the hands of the apostles, 
Many signs and wonders were taking place among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico. But none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly added to their number, to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets, so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also, the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. There are two things I like to do as we get into a passage. Number one is talking about its relevancy. I like to hook you with that, that this is relevant to our lives. And then to talk about context. And so we're going to spend some extra time this morning looking at the context of our passage. Because we've been in the book of Acts long enough. Here we're now in chapter 5 to get some sense of flow, right? I mean, those early chapters, it's kind of like, all right, we're just getting started. But now we can have some sense of flow. The best I can tell is that in Acts chapter 5, we're in the first year of the church in Jerusalem since Pentecost. We're in the first year, maybe in the first six months. Well, we can't say that definitively, but we're kind of in the very beginning stages. And the size of the church, I think where we find ourselves now, is about 20,000 people. Does that number surprise you? It's a rather large number, isn't it? How how do we come up with that number? Let's think this through. Read in chapter 2, verse 41, So then those who received Peter's word at Pentecost were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls to the church. And so here's 3,000 in addition to those already there. In chapter 4, verse 4, After they had healed the layman in the temple... There was a great response, but many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. So if we think in terms of men, wives, children, other women, we got to at least triple that number, don't we? Don't you think we have to triple that number? And then we read in chapter 5, verse 14, where we just were, and all the more believers in the Lord multitudes of men and women. It seems as if Luke at this point isn't going to try to give us an exact number. There are so many people. We're constantly added to their number to such an extent that they even carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. You know what I think is happening here, and it's hard to work with these verses, but but the, the church is getting so large that it's really tough to get in to see Peter. And so what they're doing is they're putting people out on cots so if he happens to walk by, his shadow would fall on them and bring about their healing. I think it's telling us that the multitudes were tremendous. And then in chapter 6, we read that the word of God kept on spreading. And this was after division in the church over caring for widows. The church has gotten so large that the apostles weren't able to really manage things. And so things were starting to come apart. And so we read here, the word of God, after they dealt with it correctly, kept on spreading, and the number of disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. And so I think we easily have 20,000 people. Agreed? Yep, some 20,000 people. So then we think in terms of what was the population of Jerusalem at this time? 
That's a good question. Probably, and we can't identify this for sure, you come up with an exact number, probably about 80,000 people. I've seen much smaller, somewhat larger, but about 80,000 people. Now, we know that at the time of the feasts, Jerusalem swelled. But if you're talking just basically throughout the year, some 80,000 people. So I think it is safe to say and to conclude that between 20 and 25% of the population of Jerusalem was Christian. Isn't it something? You ever thought of that? Ever had those figures put out before you? And so the early church, it was growing, wasn't it? It was vibrant. Great things were happening in Jerusalem. Talk further about context. I said we've been in the book long enough to get a sense of the flow, the ebb and flow. And that's very significant for us. And in your notes, I have a chart of sorts, which helps us understand the ebb and flow of what's taking place in the early church in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, we read of Pentecost. What a great day, wasn't it? Wasn't it? Come on. Wouldn't it love to have been there when the Spirit is poured out on the people of God? Peter preaches. People are saved. It's like, whoa. And then we've got a progress report in chapter 2. Chapter 3, Peter and John at the temple heal a layman. They proclaim Christ and and I think it's there we're told that there were some 4,000 or 5,000 men after that. But then in chapter 4, we read of Peter and John being arrested. The religious establishment is not happy, so these two leading apostles are arrested. They're beaten and told to quit preaching Jesus. No more of this Jesus stuff in our city. Then there's another progress report. Acts chapter 5, where we were last Sunday, we read of Ananias and Sapphira. Remember this couple? Uh, Barnabas is Mr. Encouragement. Well, Ananias and Sapphira are Mr. and Mrs. Discouragement because they sell some land. They say they gave it got a certain price. They lie to the apostles, and so they're guilty of lying and hypocrisy, testing God, and what happens to them? Thank you. Yes, very much. They die. They're struck dead. Boy, they've got people's attention, don't you think? Come on now. We, we, we don't want this to be in any sense safe as we deal with these kind of dynamics. Like, you know, if you were in the church, you'd probably be doing this. It's like, what's going to happen next? Wouldn't you? Ah, y'all read the story maybe too many times. Acts chapter 5 in the church. There's a progress report again. We just read it. Good things happening in the church. Success. But then the apostles are going to be arrested, all of them, not just the two. And then in chapter 6, we're going to read a division over widows. The church grows so big that the apostles can't care for all of those in it. And that's when they select seven men, right, who seem to act as deacons. And after that, there's a progress report, good things happening, and then Stephen is arrested He gives this great speech in Acts chapter 7, and he is martyred, and the church is persecuted. This great persecution comes against the church, and they scatter. They begin to accomplish, I think, because of the persecution, the purposes for which God had them there. Isn't this fascinating? This going back and forth, you get a sense of the flow And my application for us this morning is that we should expect problems and trials in the church. 
We should expect trials and troubles and problems in the church. That was certainly the case in the early church. Was it not? I don't want to be redundant and go back through all these trials, these problems. But in the midst of it, there was triumph in the trials. Did you see that? Do you see this going back and forth? Well, good things are happening, but there were trials. Good things are happening, but there were trials and struggles. There were problems, but good things were happening. Isn't that how your life is? That's, uh, I think, how our lives tend to be. Actually, I would say, hopefully, that's how our lives are. (laughs) Because some of us hit problems and trials, and we derail, and it's crash and burn, sadly, right? Yeah. We're all about being problem-free. We all want our lives to be smooth, don't we? Safe. Yeah. I read an article this week on home security by Simply Safe. And so it was titled, What to Do if You're Home During a Break-In. Now, that's a really interesting question for you to think about. Because they're asking, what do you do if you're home and somebody breaks into your house? I've never been there. Our house has been burglarized, and so we got a security system and a dog. <laughs> that was our way of dealing with it. We were in church when it happened. Yeah, Isn't that something? Somebody would steal out of our house on church on a Sunday. That's, that, that's low, isn't it? Huh? Anyways, they talk about what do you do during a break-in if you're in the house, you're in bed. What are you going to do? That's an interesting question. Here's what they say. Don't make a sound. Oh, man, it's happened. Maybe you've forgotten to set the alarm. Maybe the burglars found a way past it. That doesn't matter. It's important to know that when a break-in is violent, it happens almost immediately. So how you react in the first 30 seconds is crucial. So many people want to yell to alert a burglar that they have made a mistake, that they've come into a house with people in it, and that the police have been or are being called. Don't do it. Yeah, that's a tendency you want to speak up. You know, you're back in the bedroom and you want to holler when you hear somebody in the house. We're back here and we have three handguns, seven shotguns, two rifles, and my wife knows karate. (laughs) Right? Yeah, they say don't do it. That's a very foolish thing to do. Remember, we don't know what the burglar wants, and we don't know how he or she will react. Yelling simply gives away your location <laughs> and will allow the burglar to find you faster. Instead, get up and lock your door as quietly as possible. Listen very closely to see if you can guess how many intruders there are. Do you hear speaking? Is there any auditory evidence of a weapon? We're all about being problem-free. We, we want to be safe, simply safe. So we have home security, right? Doesn't always work the best for us because we don't know how to work with it. Now we have insurance, but, but problems still come, don't they? We work so hard at getting smooth, glassy seas, and somehow storms still seem to come up. Is that your life? Come on, be honest with me. That's your life. I know it's your life. You work so hard to get things all in order. Storms still seem to come up. You, uh, I remember when younger, just it, it seemed this way. You worked to save up a little bit of money, emergency fund, and what happens? The car breaks down. Or the hot water heater goes, right? Isn't that the way it is? Problems come. You, you work so hard to kind of get around them. 
in the church, troubles are going to come. They are. Why are they? Because we have a lot of enemies. We've got a lot of things we're fighting against. We've got an enemy. We saw that in the video during Sunday school, if you were here. That we've got the evil one is against us. Then we battle with the flesh. And then we battle with the world. And then we just the fact that we live in a broken world. And so problems will come. But progress can be made. Well, that's exactly what this chart is telling us, isn't it? If we work with it. Man, they had progress and triumph, but there, there were problems and, and trouble. And I think the key in it all is responding in faith and obedience. We respond in faith and obedience in the midst of our trials. We, the, the songs we've been singing are all about the fact that God is sovereign over the affairs of our life, and in the midst of our trials, we trust Him. Right? That's where the rubber meets the road. And that's what we saw in Acts chapter 4. Now, I'm just reiterating what we looked at before, but after Peter and John were arrested and they were beaten and they were released, they went back to the church, remember? And they had a prayer meeting. We're going to pray in light of them telling us we need assistance this season. We need to shut everything down. No, we're going to pray. And what do they pray? God, you're great. You're the creator of all things. Right? Uh, Men foolishly try to work against what you're accomplishing. You are sovereign. God, you are great and you are good and you're working all things to accomplish your purposes. That's their prayer. That's where they ended up in the midst of their trials. Sure, they had trials. And we're going to have trials. Hello? It's the real world. I, I know us. I, I, I struggle with the same thing. I just want life safe. I don't want trouble. I don't want problems. I work hard to get it all out of my life, but somehow they still seem to come. Has that been your experience? Come on, talk to me. You leave me out here hanging like, no, Pastor Joe, we, we are so spiritual that we've actually reached the second heaven. You know, we don't, we don't have problems. We all do. And so the issue isn't going to be, will we have them? The issue is going to be, will we respond in ways of faith? The, the book of Hebrews is about suffering, problems. The Hebrew Christians were suffering for their faith, and so they were tempted to turn away from Christ and go back to the old ways. That's what they are thinking of doing. And so our writer, to encourage them to continue on, to stay faithful in the midst of problems and trials and tribulations, he exalts Christ and says, Christ is superior to all of that. Continue on. And the encouragement then is to be men and women of faith. That's what Hebrews 11 is about. It's kind of starting to wrap things up. I've told you Christ is superior. Now you got to put this into play. you got to be men and women of faith. And then in chapter 12, This is what we read in chapter 12. Our writer says, Consider Jesus, who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You see, that that, that was a challenge in the early church, right? With the trials and tribulations, all they're going through to grow weary and lose heart. He says, no, no, look at Jesus, all that he dealt with. And then verse 4, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. Christ cost him his life. You haven't come there yet. But this is what I'm after. You have forgotten 
the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And then quoting from the Proverbs, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God is dealing with you as a son. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? And so we find here that our trials and troubles are the very means that God uses to discipline us and to disciple us as He transforms us into the images, uh, image of His Son and accomplishes purposes in and through us. So you see, we need to work with the reality that our trials and tribulations and tests are the very means God is using to accomplish His purposes in our lives. And our challenge is to begin to cooperate with those dynamics instead of just going to that place where we want to pull out our hair and say, just get rid of those things. Because that's where we tend to live, isn't it? I know you. I don't want to say that so proud, but, but I've lived there myself. We struggle with those things. Instead of beginning to understand God is sovereign. And he even uses the things that man may do against me. What did Joseph say to his brothers? You meant it for evil. God intended it for good. You know, that's the early church. Yeah, with all the trials and tests and tribulations, they kept it going. Because they were men and women of faith. Well, there's a lot to be learned. Just noting the movement of this book. And there, the context. All right. We're going to spend the rest of our time looking at these five verses and the activities of a successful church. Let's pull them apart for a while. And then wrap things up and then go to dinner next door. Boy, it doesn't get any better than this. Let's reread it again. At the hands of the apostles, many signs and wonders were taking place among the people. And they were all with one accord in Solomon's portico, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And all the more believers in the Lord, multitudes of men and women, were constantly being added to their number. To such an extent, there were so many that Levin carried the sick out into the streets and laid them on cots and pallets so that when Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on any one of them. Also the people from the cities in the vicinity of Jerusalem were coming together, bringing people who were sick or afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all being healed. I want to identify four dynamics that we read of here in the early church. This snapshot, this, these successes. First of all, there were signs and wonders. At the hands of the apostles, many wonders and signs were taking place among the people. We ask, well, what kind of signs and wonders? Well, we're told in verse 16 that demons were being cast out, the sick were being healed. And this was no ordinary display of power, was it, these signs and wonders? Right? 
Come on, re- read the passage. I mean, they're, they're, they're putting people on cots so that if Peter happens to go by, his shadow will fall on them. Just like this, there's the shadow of Peter, right? Falling on this person, hoping to be healed. It's kind of like what we read in, in, in Acts chapter 19 of Paul. It says extraordinary miracles were taking place. Why? Because Paul, who's a tent maker, they would take his handkerchiefs or his aprons and they would go to people and, and by touching them, they would be healed. Dude, come on. This is absolutely astounding. Were you a part of it? Be like, wow. Do I think we should expect this display of signs and wonders today? No, I do not. And there are some, there was a whole movement. John Wimper was a sign and wonders movement. All right. I do not. I think it's centered around the apostles and Stephen and Philip. Just a few validated their message, was a part of the establishment of the early church. I do not think. And help me out here. If you see somebody doing this kind of stuff, please give me their phone number because I want to find out where they're doing ministry and go watch. Wouldn't you? Come on now, would you want to do that? If somebody was doing what we see in the early church, it's like, tell me, I, I want to go see this. Right? Yeah, but I don't think it's really happening. Now, does that mean I don't believe there are miracles? I certainly do believe miracles are taking place today. That's what James 5, I think, is all about. If somebody is sick, let them call for the elders of the church. They pray over the person, and the prayer of faith will heal them, right? So I'm not saying I don't believe in miracles. But I don't see, think we see this kind of stuff taking place today. And again, my challenge to you. Some of you may be looking and thinking, well, I, th- I think it can still happen. Give me the place where it's happening. I'd love to go see it. All right? Work with this. I really would. Second, what else is going on? They were all of one accord in Solomon's portico. Of one accord, homo thumadon. Homo, which would be same, one, together, and thumadon, wrath, or fervor. So in the early church... There was this, this like-mindedness, this, this passion. They were of one accord, and it tells us that it was in the temple precincts in Solomon's portico, which is this huge covered area that, that the early church would meet. And why would they meet there? I believe they met there to hear the disciples, the apostles teach. They met there for fellowship. And so they were of one accord. Oh, they loved to hear it. Wouldn't you love to have heard the apostles teach? Why do I get so much more excited than you guys do about this stuff? You go, like, eh, I don't know. Well, wow. And then with this one accord, we know in the early church, they prayed together. A couple of times of one accord, they were praying together. They cared for physical needs. And so they were of one accord. There was this fellowship. Third of all, they were held in high esteem. Verse 13 We read, but none of the rest dared to associate with them. However, the people held them in high esteem. And so believers in Jerusalem were held in high esteem by non-believers, although they kept their distance. Right? That's the kind of idea. It's like, whoa. See, see, the non-believers were just like me. They would say, whoa, dude, what's going on? Right? That's what they're saying. It's kind of like, well, we're not, this is amazing. We're not going to be a part of this, but it certainly does fascinate us. 
And why did they fear to associate with him? The context is the fact of, of Ananias and Sapphira, and they're being struck dead. So it's kind of like, whoa, uh, I'm not sure we want to be a part of this. We're right to conclude, I think from what we read here, and I'm going to come back to it in just a minute, there was a high level of commitment in the early church. And that's why people on the outside, they they respected them, but they didn't dare really to be a part of it. They didn't dare join in with them because they probably feared, boy, if we're a part of this, you know, people are being struck dead in the church. hear about Ananias and Sapphira. Yeah, can't believe it. Wow. Yeah. It had people talking, didn't it? Not just whispering. Talking. And then finally, they were a growing church. Multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their numbers. So it's seen that the church is growing. It's declared here. And we're told that at the, as it ends that, that they were coming from cities surrounding Jerusalem, bringing their sick, those they wanted healed, demons cast out from them. And so what's happening, I think this is a subtle clue by Luke. The church is starting to grow outside of Jerusalem. I think this is kind of the first mention of this dynamic. It's, just, it's going to be the powerful dynamic here in a little bit. And I think that's what's all behind Stephen and his martyrdom because the persecution comes against the church. And it says, F God says, look, I want you to reach the world. And exciting things are happening here in Jerusalem. And wow, you got a big church. you got a mega church here. But you've got responsibilities for the world. Get out there. Wow. Yeah. All right. Let's conclude and make some application here for a while. Do you have a sense that the early church in Jerusalem was this vibrant, triumphant church? I hope you do. I think that's our writer's intent. It's like, boy, there there were troubles, but there was triumph. The, The church is growing. The apostles are doing signs and wonders. The fellowship was sweet. People got along and they sacrificed for one another. All of these things are happening. And then so I'm asking the question, this snapshot of success. And here I'm just going this way with my application. We could go other ways probably. But but why? Well, what brought about the success? That's a good question to ask, isn't it? You see this success. And you know what I've come to conclude? I've come to conclude that that it was because they didn't have any problems. And you know, that's not true, right? Because we've been talking about this for so long. It's, it's the fact that they responded in faith to their problems. I was at Prairie Bible Institute. And uh, that was years ago, so I'm going to make some of this stuff up. I can't say I remember it for sure. That was uh, 40 years ago. Yeah, at least 40 years ago. But I believe they had on the front of the sanctuary the same sun that hardens the clay, melts the butter. What does that mean? Is that a proverb? It means this, trials and tribulations for some people just makes them hard, bitter. They quit. And for others, it softens them and brings about the further activity of God. Well, that's a good statement. Yeah. So that's first application. It responded in faith to its problems, and so was triumphant. Second of all, it had strong leadership. You got to see that, right? The apostles; these guys were were something. 
These guys were something. They were spirit-filled. We know that. They were Christ-exalting. They were men of word and prayer, courageous. They were beaten and told to cease and desist, and their response was, we're not. You work your ways. You do what you would, but we're not. So it had strong leadership. And then the third idea, I would say, it had a strong membership. It just had strong members. Vibrant church is built out of vibrant believers, spirit-filled, people of the word and prayer, caring relationships, commitment to holiness. You know what this is starting to sound like? Acts 2.42, isn't it? Which is one of the progress reports. In the early church, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And so we see that. You see that even now as we've been going from progress report to progress report to progress report, that those were the basics in the early church. And so they are the basics at Charleston Bible Church. We're building with the right things. Churches can build with all kinds of things. Can they not? But, oh, to build with the Word of God and with prayer and with fellowship and with the breaking of bread, which is the exalting of Christ and worship and witness. Oh. We come back to this idea of none of the rest dared to associate with them. They respected them, but they kept their distance. And I like what Vance Havner writes in challenging us, and he really speaks strongly here. People didn't join this church carelessly. They were afraid to. There was a holy awe that kept every Tom, Dick, and Harry at a distance. People didn't rush into this fellowship just because it was the nice thing to do. It meant something to unite with this crowd. There was a holy repulsion. And notice this. I know of nothing that the church needs more today. It is the last thing we think we need. We're always trying to attract our programs and prizes and picnics and pulpit pyrotechnics are aimed at drawing the people in. Here was a church that made people stand back. We have catered to the world. We've let the world slap the church on the back in coarse familiarity. And here was a church that prospered by repelling You will observe that all this followed on the heels of the death of Ananias and Sapphira. If the church took a stand today on sins within, if we thundered out, as Peter did here, against lying to the Holy Ghost, it would make the world stand at a respectful distance, and the fear of God would fall on a generation that laughs at the church. Vance Havner, he's been dead for a while. So he was probably 20, 30, 40 years ago, and he was in these things. And then he concludes, or he continues on, What was the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? They pretended to make a full consecration that was not real. And are not our churches filled with men and women who sing, I surrender all, when they have not surrendered anything? The church is cluttered with people who should never have joined. That's pretty strong, isn't it? Every so often we need a strong word. And oh, for us to be people who are respected in our community, to be a church that is respected in our community because we've surrendered all. Because of our holy, because of our consecration. That was the early church. We're just looking at it and say, boy, what can we learn from them? 
And sometimes we, we want to be so like the world that we have no attraction because it's like, why would I go there? You're just like me. You're struggling with the same things and you seem to give the same answers. Instead of being different, being Christ-like, being holy, and at times offending the world. So that it looks at us and says, you know what? Maybe you do have some answers. Amen. Oh, to be such a church. Amen? I'm not all about being light. I like to be light. That's my temperament. I know most of you are the same way, but we don't always have to be light, do we? No. As we seek holiness. In your notes, I've got some questions. People have said, hey, the questions have helped. And so I'm going to keep them coming. Let me conclude with a story that comes from Anne Lamont in her book, Traveling Mercies. In her book, she tells the story of a little girl that got lost in a big city. It's just a little girl lost in a big city. It's not good. And as a little girl was looking for some sort of familiar landmarks to get her bearings to make it back home and wasn't able to, and a police car pulled up and the policeman wanting to help had her sit in the front seat. And So here she is, this little girl, in a police car, driving around the city. They're looking for some sort of familiar landmarks. And, and they come upon her church. And her response was, you can let me out now. This is my church. And I can always find my way home from here. I like that statement. You know, when, I, when I'm with the church, when I'm with my people, the people of God, you know, I, I can find my way back home. And then Lamont continues on, and this is why I have stayed so close to my church, because no matter how bad I am feeling, how lost or lonely or frightened, when I see the faces of the people at my church and hear their tawny voices, I can always find my way home. I like that. The the, the church to be that kind of body. Again, 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 we realize we're going to have our trials and tribulations, aren't we? But it's still, it's the place I belong. I know it's home. And the people there are going to push me and point me and encourage me in the right direction. Amen? Amen. Amen. This was one exciting church in the early church. And here, coming back to where I started, we talked about being productive and successful. We want that. We want that for our church. And so these are the kind of things we will continue to grapple with. And we'll learn from the early church in Acts, won't we, and their struggles. Father, we give you praise. We thank you for the book of Acts. It challenges us with how we look at life and what we hope for out of life, what we pursue in life, what things are important. Thank you, Father, for your word. And thank you that your word is used by your spirit to challenge us. You make us uncomfortable. We seek safe. We seek smooth. We want comfort. Fathers, you so well know about us and we so well know about ourselves. When everything is just kind of smooth and safe, we just kind of stagnate. And we don't want that. We want so much more than that. We want to hear from you when it's all said and done. Well done, good and faithful servant. So, Father, continue by your Spirit's activity to work in our lives as we leave here today. May these words not be forgotten. This is not those who hear the word who are blessed, but those who do it. So continue 
to move us forward. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.